Hey everybody, you are watching School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel. I am broadcasting tonight from Walt Disney World because I'm on vacation with my family. So I know that the sound and the video might not be uh, super clear. Um, so just bear with me a little bit. I'm not going to talk too much tonight. Um, and Eric and Rebecca will maybe uh, ask some of the questions that I have and whatnot. But I'm really excited, though, to be able to make the time to still do the podcast because we are huge fans of Dr. Ortiz. Um, speaking of sound quality, another thing that I wanted to mention is that um, that's probably the number one critique that we get, especially on iTunes, that our sound is very poor. We are aware of that for sure. And um, Re Rebecca and Eric and I have been talking about that a lot and talking about, you know, maybe we need to invest in some better technology and some microphones and whatnot. But of course, we're poor school psychologists. So we wanted to run by. Um, we might put out a poll and just see what feedback we get from you guys as far as, you know, maybe a GoFundMe for some better technology or um, maybe taking sponsorships from, you know, agencies or companies that are involved in school psychology in some manner um, or any other ideas that you guys have. So we have been having conversations about the sound quality and are kind of brainstorming ways to fix that. So if you have any thoughts, uh, let us know. And then the last thing I wanted to say before we got started is we are very aware that Game of Thrones is coming on in an hour, so we are going to be quick. Uh, we're going to you know, get as much as we can, and uh, we are going to be done by 9 o'clock so everybody can go off and, and watch the dragons. We're very excited. So I'm going to pass it over, though, to Rebecca, who's going to tell us how to participate tonight. Rebecca? Yes, hello everybody. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut and I'd like to remind you how to participate. Um, I know many of you actually watch our, uh, watch our YouTube video, not live, but later in the week and some of you listen on iTunes. So I want to start with you all that are not watching live. Please do um, share your thoughts and comments, rate us, review us on iTunes and uh, leave, you know, anything uh, that you take away from the podcast. It means so much to us. And we really do look at the comments and take them seriously. As Rachel mentioned, um, we will be thinking about what we can do about the sound quality. So if you're watching live, the easiest way to participate uh, is uh, to, to um, log into your Google account and you, um, right next to your YouTube screen, you can um, comment in the chat box. I already see some of you there. Hello, Serena. Um, and we'll be looking for your comments and questions and sharing them with Dr. Ortiz. Also, please feel free to comment on either of the Facebook pages, the School Psych Podcast page, where you can stay up to date with upcoming events and see our polls. Um, uh, you can use the hashtag Psyched Podcast on either Facebook page, also School Psych, your school psychologist page, and on Twitter, of course, and the hashtag is Psyched Podcast. So now I'm going to hand it over to Eric, who is going to introduce our wonderful guest. Eric? All right. Thank you, Rebecca and Rachel. Hi, everybody. I'm Eric, and I'm also a school psychologist in Connecticut, and we are excited to have another conversation with Dr. Ortiz. As many of you know, if uh, you checked out his podcast with us in the fall, he spoke to us about assessment and best practices and working with second language learners. And at that time, we discussed with him uh, the possibility of coming back to talk about interventions, multi-tiered systems of support, and continuing to develop that 
uh, lens for understanding people through uh, culturally and linguistically diverse learners uh, through a more refined lens. So uh, just a quick background, Dr. Ortiz is a professor of psychology at St. John's University in New York. He holds a PhD in clinical psychology from University of Southern California and is also a credentialed school psychologist with postdoctoral training in bilingual school psychology from San Diego State University. He has served as visiting professor and research fellow at Nagoya University in Japan and vice president for professional affairs of APA Division 16 School Psychology and as a member and chair of APA's Committee on Psychological Tests and Assessment. Um, he has served on a number of uh, boards as well for, uh, let's see, I'm trying to read as I, as I go along here, um, for Journal of School Psychology at School Psych Quarterly, Journal of Applied School Psychology, and is a member of the Study of School Psychology, SSSP and has published a number of articles and books on the topic of bilingual assessment. And we welcome you, Dr. Ortiz. I know you have a lot to talk to us about and we are excited to have you back again. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric, Rebecca and Rachel for having me back. And I'm gonna start sharing, well, I'm gonna hit the overall button. I wanna make sure that you're seeing my full screen. But now I like noticing the books on your bookshelf. Forget my books. <laughs> Thank you for joining me and uh, let's get started because I know we've got uh, a bunch to cover and I, I um, I'm sort of picking up where I left off last time a little bit in the sense that I am talking about assessment of English learners. However, this time it's from the framework of multi-tiered support systems or response to intervention. Now, if you think I'm coming in here because I'm going to, to criticize RTI or MTSS, well, you're very, very much wrong about that. Uh, but if you think I'm also here to just laud it, RTI and MTSS and say it's the next best thing since sliced bread, uh, you're wrong about that too. What I'm here to do really is to show that it doesn't really matter what framework for measurement that you use. If you don't account for the things that make an English learner distinctly different from a monolingual native English speaker, then there's no hope, regardless of the type of system you use, to be able to evaluate them fairly. So from that perspective, we have to understand what is it that you do get from MTSS and RTI that is of value and how can you apply it properly so that it would work with English learners. Because it's not that it won't work, it's just that what you think might work for English speakers, as the title implies, isn't always what's going to work for English learners. So. Um, this, like uh, before, is really an issue of validity. And I like the way that uh, Wolfram Adger and Christian here back in 1990 put it, that when you compare someone to someone else, and you're trying to determine if their, their skills, their knowledge, their behaviors, their abilities, whatever it is, are significantly different, perhaps lower, all right, less well-developed than um, another child or another group or an expected standard, then you have to compare them to peers who have similar experiences. And this is where we often fail. What, what is meant by similar experiences is not, it's not race or it's not ethnicity, it's not culture, it's not age necessarily or just directly. Uh, 
it's it's language. We're talking about English learners. We're talking about people who are growing up with two different languages, not with just one. And we were having a discussion with Rebecca early on about a conference that she was at where a gentleman was speaking about these types of issues and how the brain really is shaped in a very different way when you have influences of a certain kind. And language is one of those. When you have two languages from birth, you don't grow up as a monolingual speaker. You see the world differently. You understand things differently. Your brain works differently. And this is something that has to be accounted for. But the biggest problem is that you might not be comparable to somebody else. In other words, I'll give you a quick example here. And I think that NCREST, I don't know if you guys are familiar with NCREST, the National Center for Culturally Responsive Educational mm -hmm. Systems. But back in 2005, when RTI was really gaining some momentum, they were saying, well, we have to be concerned that if we don't really understand how culture and language can affect learning in general, then what we're going to be doing is the same thing that we've been doing before with tests. In other words, RTI, they put it in a nice um, idiom here, would be like old wine in a new bottle. And so there was a recognition that if we just continue to hold the same standards, same expectations without understanding language, then we're really not going to be doing anything that's going to work. And the easiest way of thinking about this is, um, is, is to look at my experience. When I was 10 years old and in fifth grade, I had been learning English starting in kindergarten. So I was an English learner when I started school. But that means I had been learning English for at best five years, at best, because when I went home, I didn't get English 24-7. My parents spoke to me in Spanish. The English that they did use was fractured and grammatically incorrect often. So it wasn't like I was getting as much as everybody else by that time, but it was five years at best. Now, you know that comparing me to a monolingual speaker, English speaker who'd been learning English for 10 years means I had barely half of the kind of development in English that they did. So that's not fair. But there was another 10-year-old kid in my class. He was Puerto Rican like me, male like me, living in the same base housing area that I lived in, attending the same school. His father was the same rank in the military as my dad, same socioeconomic status. By every measure you can think of, we were exactly the same. So we should be peers, shouldn't we? You should be able to compare me to him and him to me. But you can't. If you were to evaluate us in English, in anything, whether it was academics or standardized testing through RTI kind of system, it would have it would have favored me in English because I had five years worth of English and he only had a couple of months. Why? Because he'd been educated in Spanish in Puerto Rico in his native language up through fourth grade and had just entered the school that year. So he barely knew any English and he would fail miserably on that kind of a test. Likewise, if you were to evaluate us in Spanish, thinking that I'm bilingual, so you're going to get something out of testing me in my native language, it wouldn't have helped you at all. He would have done perfectly well. He would have been age appropriate, and then I would have looked like I had a disorder of some kind because I would have been very, very low since I had not received any formal language instruction in my life. And so, it, again, it doesn't matter what you're looking at. We have to compare like to like, or as I put probably last time, apples to apples and oranges to oranges. Now, RTI has kind of gotten off with a very, very good reputation to begin with, and for good reason, but with some misconceptions. And, and here is a couple of them. You'll probably recognize Baker and Good here. And back in 1995, they were looking at the reliability, validity, and sensitivity of some curriculum-based uh, measures, uh, reading measures, with bilingual Hispanic students. Now, they concluded that the, the CBM passages all right, was as reliable and valid, and that's where I kind of draw the line there, but and valid for Hispanics, bilingual Hispanics, as it was for native English speakers, despite finding differential growth rates. The growth rates for the bilingual children were not as high or as rapid as the native English speakers. So I, I sort of question that because I'm thinking to myself, well, 
what would be the definition of invalidity? How would you then say that it it it's equal if by definition, there's a difference in growth rates. Shouldn't they have been the same? And they should have now, or they shouldn't have. It depends on the question you're asking. But the point being here that you can't expect English learners to be able to make the same amount of progress as native English speakers. While the the use of RTI and MTSS certainly is beneficial for both, it is clearly more beneficial for native English speakers than it is for English learners when you're using standards that are based on the progress and expectations of learning for English speakers, not English learners. Mm -hmm. So this was clear that you have to then have a different understanding of what that progress would be. And Gerstner and Woodward had done the same thing back in 1994, a year earlier. And they said, and this is, this is absolutely true, CBM could be used to develop growth rates for ELL students. But then they made a sort of an assumption here, really unfounded. Yes, you can develop growth rates for English learner students. However, all right, ELL students do not generally continue to make academic progress or grade level norms, all right? Whereas ELL students with LD do not. In fact, all ELL students, the average ELL student, even those without disabilities, do not make progress toward grade level norms. Will they make progress? Yes, but will they reach grade level norms? By and large, no, they won't. And so therefore, that puts all English learners at risk for being identified as LD mm -hmm. if you're using this type of criteria. So I, I remember, some of you might remember back when NAS was in Atlanta for the first time back in 2004, I think it was, and it was just there this past uh, spring. And I was asked to be on a panel, and I was placed right in the middle uh, between a discussion that was sort of RTI versus testing. And on, on the left, um, supporting RTI was Dan Reschley and um, Frank Gresham, right? And then on the right side of me were Kathy uh, um, Fiorello uh, from Temple and Aurelio Prefetera from Psycorp. And I was sort of in the middle. So I was like, I got to discuss these issues and this this battle um, from the perspective of English learners, which was great because at least it meant that I wasn't taking sides here because there were problems with both. But I remember talking about an article that came out right at that time by uh, Joe Kovaleski and David Pross. Um, mm -hmm. And that was uh, a, a quote that I just sort of pulled out. You can see here, increased fairness in the assessment process, particularly for minority students. And I was kind of like, okay, I hear that all the time, but I don't know where there's evidence for that. It's an assumption that I don't really see that's borne out, particularly when the standards for making decisions about progress or lack of progress or response or failure to respond is made on the basis of expectations or standards developed on monolingual English speakers. So I said, well, let's go through the whole RTI process then and figure out you know, what needs to be done, what can be done better, what are the challenges that are facing districts that might want to implement an RTI or NPSS model with groups of English learners. Well, if we start at tier one, this is where we kind of run into some immediate problems here. Obviously at tier one, we're saying we want to make sure effective instruction is in place for all students, so the vast majority of them. Well, when you review the, the research, what you find is there have been currently, I believe, six different meta-analyses, and they've all come to the same conclusion, that teaching English learners to read in their first language and then in their second language or in their first and second language simultaneously, that basically this leads to better outcomes in their achievement in English the second language being English. Now, some people think, well, that's gotta be a typo or you, you misquoted that. No, no, no. Teaching 
children to read and write and do math in their native language helps them learn English better than just trying to teach them in English. Now you think, why is that? Well, I don't have time to go into all of the developmental issues, but it's because you don't interrupt the development that children bring in. I started school at the age of five with five years of language development, no different than any other child, except my five years were in Spanish, not in English. Then I was told, well, that's great, but we don't care about your Spanish development. We're not going to use that. It's not a part of your education. It's irrelevant. So start learning English right now, and that's how we're going to teach you. So that meant that in the next five years, I acquired maybe, and probably not as much, but maybe a fraction or a, a, a part of the English that you had already developed at the age of five. So I'm now 10 and I'm where you were in kindergarten, maybe not even at that level, but now you're 10 and we're both in fifth grade and we're given fifth grade instruction. Who's gonna do better? Clearly you are. So that's why throwing development away can be a problem. And it has been consistently demonstrated that there is no alternative here. There is no magic bullet. There's no special teaching strategy that is going to help English learners catch up. People want to, and they, they say we should, but they often focus on the wrong concept of the wrong issue or in the wrong way of doing it. Here's an example. I, I took some graphs and some information from the, um, the Oregon RTI uh, manual. So this is their state manual. And and I love you, Oregon. You know, I go there many, many times. I'm not picking on you guys. You know that I support everything that you do and I'm with you. But I love your RTI manual because it provides a lot of illustration for me. And this is one example. All right. What they show is in the manual that they want to improve basically the racial achievement gap there. But the, the racial gap isn't what's actually important. In fact, the racial gap isn't what's creating the gap in the first place. It's probably more of a language gap. Race and ethnicity are not synonymous with language differences. And just because you call somebody Latino or Hispanic doesn't mean that they are a second language learner or an English learner. They may well be, but it's not that simple. And just because you are, let's say African-American doesn't mean you don't have another language. African-American vernacular English can be considered a dis is considered a distinct language in and of itself. You could even be Caucasian and have another second language that isn't necessarily standard English as the first one. So we, we sort of jump over what the real issue is and we think, oh, it's really no problem. And I, this is a, a study I, I threw in here because I wanted you to see just how irrelevant race and ethnicity can be. And, I, and this is a, a study that we did as part of the um, technical manual for the Ortiz Picture Vocabulary Acquisition Test, which I published last year. And it, um, it shows that if you, if you take and group individuals, and this is our norm sample, the monolingual English speaking norm sample, not the English learner sample. So all of these individuals are monolingual English speakers and you group them by race or ethnicity and then you evaluate the pairwise comparisons and you look at the difference between and what you find is there are no differences, no statistically significant differences. Now you could argue and say, yeah, but that 0.05 was kind of getting there. Yeah, but that's not the point of significance. Either it is or it isn't. But look at the partial eta squared on the very far hand right side. That's a that's a contemporary version of Cohen's delta. People are switching to partial eta squared uh, as opposed to Cohen's delta. And you know that a small to moderate effect size might be 0.2 to 0.3. Well, we didn't get 0.2 or 0.1 or 0.01. We got 0.005, which indicates that on a test of language, which is a type of test that generally will show as much as one standard deviation to one standard deviation and a third differences between races, 
and we got zero. And the reason we did was because we constructed that monolingual English-speaking norm sample on individuals who were monolingual English speakers, regardless of their race or ethnicity. So when you control for the variance in language, you really tend to make differences in terms of race or ethnic groups disappear. And you can see, by the way, this was repeated on a form A and form B, and the results were virtually identical. So when we're talking about tier one, we have very noble goals. This is what we want to do. This is an important thing. And providing good quality instruction is absolutely a must and a fundamental uh, requirement for a good, solid, and appropriate education for everybody. The problem is, with the number of English learners increasing, we just probably don't have that many programs or that many resources or that much funding to actually make this occur for every English learner that we have. In fact, it's probably impossible because we have 350 different languages minimum spoken in the United States. We're not going to be able to provide native language instruction for all of them. But the reality is the moment we don't do that, we cannot then assume that we are meeting whatever the standard and goal should be for tier one in an RTI model. In fact, what we'd have to do is probably ignore it and say, well, it's been met even though it hasn't, and then just move on from there. So that's not really what we should be doing. And again, you can see that uh, the, the requirements of Tier 1 are to provide evidence-based practices that should reduce this gap. And even if we switch it from racial gap and we start calling it a language gap, that's fine. But what are the evidence-based practices that are going to resolve the problem? Well, there really aren't any. It doesn't matter how much fidelity we start throwing at it, okay? If we are not providing a program that provides native language instruction, and the only programs that actually do that are dual language or dual language immersion, two-way bilingual, and maintenance type, what's called late exit type bilingual. Those are the programs that have been empirically validated to work and provide achievement for English learners that is comparable to monolingual native English speakers, in some cases actually better. So without that, it just doesn't work. And here's, here's an example of how strong the impact is when we ignore the development that individuals bring in. What you see here are the Thomas and Collier data from 1997 and 2002, where they were looking at the academic trajectories in reading, writing, and math. And they said they were all very similar for English learners from K through 12. And the, the dotted line here at the 50th percentile basically denotes the the average modeling English speaker performance at each of those grade levels. So what you see is English learners start off below grade level naturally, and then they start catching up. But the only ones that actually catch up are the ones in the two-way bilingual program and the ones in the late exit bilingual program. The ones who get some native language instruction, like a transitional early exit program here, they, they, they do well, but they plateau and they never actually reach the 50th percentile. They end up at the 32nd percentile. I've converted the NCEs here, which are outside the parentheses, to percentile ranks, which are easier to interpret inside the parentheses. But the moment you don't provide any kind of attention to the development they bring in, things get even worse. Content-based ESL, if those kids stay in uh, till 12th grade, they only reach, as a group, 
the 22nd percentile, and their academic peak in school was in sixth grade. It's even worse for kids getting ESL, traditional ESL, in a pullout kind of way. Those kids peak in fourth grade. Granted, they make rapid progress in English early on, but all of that English that they're learning is conversational language, fix, if you will, basic interpersonal communication skills. It's not content language. It's not academic language that is necessary for later success. They plateau in fourth grade academically, and each year they stay in school, you can see, they fall further and further behind. That's really tragic. If they stay in school and don't drop out, by the time they're in 12th grade, they're at the 11th percentile. That means they're achieving, on average, at a standard score would be about an 81. So why this happens is exactly what I was telling you before. We tend to focus on the English-only window where we're, we're thinking, let's just get them speaking. Let's just get them proficient in speaking English and everything is fine. That would be great if we graduated children in third grade. But when we're looking at them academically, when we're trying to address the concept of this achievement gap, which is substantial by the time they get into 12th grade, then the only way that we're going to do that is to use a program that builds on the native language. And that's what's happening on the top. Those two programs result in what's called simultaneous bilingualism, where a person becomes bilingual and biliterate. And somehow this not only helps them either succeed or fail at the same rate as monolingual English speakers, it actually, if they're in a two-way bilingual program where they become bilingual and biliterate, actually enhances their cognitive abilities and academic achievement such that they end up 20 percentile ranks higher than average. But when we do it in a what's called sequential bilingualism manner, sometimes also called a subtractive bilingualism, where we take away that native language, we just don't build on it, we don't think of it as useful in any way, those kids really suffer and do very, very poorly. So clearly, you know, that's where we're at. If we have to be honest about, you know, tier one issues for RTI with English learners, we have to recognize that it, it really can't be fair if we start off with the wrong kind of program to begin with. The child is already going to be suffering in terms of their academic progress. And what we do with RTI and MTSS isn't going to necessarily correct that. And understand this, if it were sufficient to correct the injustice or the developmental disadvantages that are play, placed in front of the child because they're teaching them only in English and ignoring their development in native language, if it truly worked, we would do it. We would show that it worked and we would be happy doing it. But it isn't going to. There's no way to make up for the developmental let's say, artificial developmental delay that is placed upon children when they start school. They're five years behind in terms of language. There's no way to make that up over the next 12 years. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't mean that some kids won't succeed. Obviously, some will. But the vast majority, I've done some research that indicates that by 12th grade, 60% of English learners will be at risk for academic failure at that point, meaning they'll be scoring anywhere between one standard deviation to two standard deviations below the mean. So it, it isn't going to work. We can't really you know, fix it in that way. And if we're going to do an RTI model, then how do we justify moving to tier two if we haven't really done a good job in tier one? And that good job can only come from having provided native language instruction. There is no substitute for that. Now. All right, enough said, uh, we're gonna move to tier two anyway. So would things get better even if we just moved to tier two? Well, I mean, here, obviously the goal is to provide effective instruction to the target student and to measure its effect on performance. Great, all right, that all sounds wonderful, except that the programs that we're going to use are unlikely to be as effective as we think they are. Someone who does a great deal of research in this area is uh, Mike Vanderwood, and this is one of his studies here. And he wrote very clearly that making an assumption about what works with native English speakers will work with students from 
diverse language backgrounds may be inaccurate. And that's a very polite way of saying it doesn't actually work. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't make progress. What it means is it doesn't work to the extent that we might be expecting it to work. And I think that's something that needs to be very clear. It's not that it won't help. It's just that it won't help as much because you're dealing with individuals who are different. And how different are they? Well, a lot of people know reading recovery. A lot of people use reading recovery. A lot of uh, research on the effectiveness of reading recovery with students who are monolingual native English speakers. Back in 2009, when the What Works Clearinghouse was examining studies on the use of reading recovery with English learners, what they find? None of these studies meet WWC evidence standards. So you know, you already see it doesn't work as well as we might think. They did the same thing with a program called Accelerated Reader. Same thing, 2009, 13 studies looking at them, none of them met WWC evidence standards. So there's no way to say that using these is something that is automatically valid. Again, I'm not doubting that they can help. What I'm saying is that if we use the standards in terms of measuring the progress that were developed on English speakers, then our interpretation of lack of progress or failure to respond will be heavily discriminatory. And that's what we can't have. So in tier two, we have, again, a noble idea. We want to provide small group instruction. It's more intensive, a little bit more targeted, but we're pulling programs pretty much off the shelf that really don't have an evidence or evidentiary base that says, here's how they work with English learners. And we cannot assume either, and something that I see that happens all the time, is that even after a child has been deemed to be no longer limited English proficient, and every state has a particular test that they use. Uh, 38 states, I think, use the WIDA, for example, for this particular Title III purpose to, to document the uh, progress of their English learners in English language acquisition. Other states like Texas uses the TELPASS, uh, California uses the LPAC, uh, New York uses the NICE slot. They have like their own individual versions. But essentially, once a child meets a certain threshold at a certain point, usually around third to fourth grade, and they are removed from ESL services because they're no longer entitled to them now that they are fluent English speakers, so to speak, they can be treated, they can be evaluated, and they can be intervened with as if they were modeling English speakers at that point with no legal requirement to even look at their language or cultural backgrounds. And that's devastating. That's also one reason why people often say, well, there seems to be a drop in the overrepresentation of English learners as they get older. Yes, it's because school districts will take away that designation once they reach a certain level of proficiency. Very often it's taken away automatically when they're entered into special education, which is not really a permissible thing to do, but it happens all the time. So. We're, we're, we're trying to do things that really aren't going to work very well in the service of saying, okay, this is maybe what's best for the child because we're going to immerse them in English even more. So the idea of putting a child in special ed is let's intensify the services there, but it's the same thing at a tier three in an RTI MTSS level. We're saying, let's give this child now some one-on-one -on -one direct intensive kind of intervention. Let's really focus on getting this kid to learn. And at this point, the question becomes, well, what would you be doing that would be substantially different than you did at level two, other than giving the child more of the same? I mean, I'm sure many of you have heard that the definition of insanity, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Well, this kind of reminds me of that because I'm thinking, all right, you tried things at tier two, it didn't work. That's why you bumped the child into tier three. So what are you gonna do now that is different? 
what what is magical and special about tier three that will change what's going to happen other than we're going to do more of it well again it's ignoring the developmental issues that accompany the child and that's what's going to prevent it from working very very well here you can see again i'm going to take this from the oregon rti manual right their state manual and this is how they determine that a child isn't making progress particularly at tier three so they say any student who's not made progress according to the four data points below the aim line is a child then that they would say probably has a disability and could be placed in special ed so you see the aim line right there going from i can't even read that 15 words i think uh at that time and then there's the target up here to 50 and this child you know is at 20 24 26 31 30 29 35 so the last four including these really are all below the aim line at this point you could say that child is failing to respond to intervention and therefore may have a disability or could be placed in special ed uh, as a learning disabled child and that that i mean it, it's sort of ridiculous because this child is actually making progress and if this is the progress of an english learner this is maybe what the progress should be like. In other words, how do we know that's not normal progress for an English learner on that type of program? We don't know. And if it is average, then we're calling the child disabled when in fact they don't have a disability. All right, here's another example. This is again, directly from the Oregon RTI manual. Example B indicates the student is not making sufficient progress according to local cohort growth rates. Okay, so this is maybe an improvement because we say, instead of using an aim line that was based on just a national standard okay let's let's create a local cohort uh sort of local norms kind of aim line standard but again who are the individuals on which this standard is being developed are they the kids in this child's classroom are they all english learners do they all have the same level of development in english answer is probably not and if that's the case then it means that this this aim line remains discriminatory so while you're using a local cohort that may be great but it doesn't necessarily resolve the problem that not all english learners are the same not all english learners in a classroom with english speakers are the same as those english speakers just because they're in the same classroom with the same teacher in the same school doesn't mean the expectations of growth should all be the same they're not and so you have poor chase down here at the bottom he's not making progress according to that well, what if isaiah mary and amy are modeling native english speakers and chase is an english learner there you have a big difference or what if isaiah mary and amy are english learners but they have been learning english since kindergarten let's say they're in third grade now or something and what if chase is brand new to the school he just got put in a third grade class he's never had any formal education before in his native language and now he's just learning english why would his rate of progress be that good it wouldn't be that good and that's again what we have uh to worry about that's what we have to be concerned with you often get growth rates given to you so here you go are some national growth rates for reading and you can see that for grade one two words a week in terms of improvement is considered realistic three words is ambitious so that's great it slows down a bit as kids get up in grade so by grade two it's one and a half three it's 1.0 four it's 0.85 five it's it's a basically half a word a week at that point um, but where do these numbers come from all right. Are these growth rates based again on English learners or not? Are they based on monolingual English speakers? If they are, then they're not appropriate for English learners. If they're based on English learners, all right, are they controlled for the degree of difference between them? Because at age eight, remember, at age eight, you could have an English learner who's been learning English for a week 
one who's been learning it for a month, one who's been learning it for four months, one who's been learning it for eight months, one who's been learning it for a year, one who's been learning it for a year and a half, one who's been learning for two years, three years, four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. They're not the same. And to group them together and to expect all of them to make the same amount of progress would be discriminatory. And we can't have that. We need to have growth rates that are suitable. Here's another example. This is their example D from the dwarf. And they're saying, okay, notice that Rita's gain, which is the blue line down there, is only half a word read correctly per minute. The national typical ambitious is one to one and a half, typical one, one and a half ambitious. And the cohort for her is gaining at 0.9 words read correctly per minute. So clearly she has more than four data points below the aim line. So poor Rita must have a disability. And again, that answer is not necessarily. If Rita is being compared to individuals with different levels of development, then our interpretation of what's going on here will be exceptionally discriminatory. And we can't do that. The problem, of course, is where do you get these standards? Where do you develop them? And I have to tell you right now, I don't think there are any. It's something you'd have to develop on your own, probably locally, and you'd have to take extreme care to make sure that you're comparing English learners who are like other English learners, not by the language that they speak, but by the amount of English that they have been exposed to in their lifetime, up to that age, up to that grade, how much have they had? So really, it's a, it's a, there's a need to differentiate almost all English learners, which is something difficult to do. And granted, I understand this. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not even saying that it's wholly feasible in most cases, but there's nothing else that can be done if we seek to really make it fair and to do justice to English learners. The peer cohort has to be a true peer comparison. This is something that I emphasized in my last podcast because it's the same issue regardless of whether we're doing RTI or MTSS, regardless of whether we're doing standardized testing or curriculum-based measures, no matter what kind of evaluation it is, we have to compare individuals to true peers. And when it comes to an English learner, true peers can only be established on the basis of the language development that they have. And sometimes people will say, well, I do have like criteria for Spanish speakers. Oh, that's great. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't think the the issue is how much um, you know progress they're making in Spanish necessarily. Although that's something that could be investigated, and certainly why not? But the same thing that I've been saying with respect to English applies to the native language. Not all children have the same level of development in their native language, even if they're getting educated in their native language here in the United States. Um, I mentioned the 10-year-old kid who started fifth grade with me. He had a fourth grade education in Spanish. He knew how to read, write, and do math in Spanish. I couldn't do that. I was taught to read, write, and do English, and I was barely able to uh, to do them in English, uh, there's no way I would have been able to do them at a fourth grade level in Spanish. I can hardly do that now. And I'm an adult. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's different and it changes. And if we're not controlling for the type of education they're getting, how long they've had that education, all right, and how much development they have in that language, then we can't say that this is going to be any more valid and 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 non-discriminatory just because it's in the native language again i mentioned this before this is the same issue when we're doing standardized testing if the true peer comparison group still doesn't account for the differences in language development in the native language then how is that any more fair than what we're trying to do in english it, it isn't it, it's still an issue and it's still something that we have to consider something that we have to pay attention to so you know i i kind of uh i get to tier three and I, I'm, I, I'm really sort of at a loss, but I, I have to say that unless 
we are accounting for these differential rates of development that are a function of exposure and development in English that varies from, you know, 1% of an individual's life to 99% of an individual's life, then how effective are we going to be and how fair are these methods going to be as compared to any other methods? They're going to have the same difficulties, the same problems, and they're not going to result in the kinds of valid uh, data that we can use to make determinations regarding difference versus disorder. So I, I hope that, you know, it, it, it becomes clear and I'm not trying to be very negative. Clearly, you know, this is not a very positive message, but it, it, it's also meant to just be a cautionary tale here. It's supposed to let you know that you've got to be very careful what you do with the data that you collect. In fact, one of the things I want to show you is that when you collect data, you also have to be very concerned about the question that you're asking. So for example, here Here's a chart where we're looking at words read correctly per minute, all right? Second grade progress chart divided into six week sort of benchmarking periods, okay? And let's say that the standard aim line like this is what we get from a classroom of kids who are primarily monolingual English speakers. Now they start at 20 words read correctly per minute here and the program that we give them, the instruction that we give them increases their words read correctly per minute by 15 words every marking period. So. By the time uh, we get to the 12th week, they're at 50 words and they started at 20. All right. But what if you have an English learner and this is what they look like? And I call my English learner Egberto. Those of you who know uh, Dan Reschley's work, he likes to use uh, the name Egbert for his examples. And when I followed him at a presentation one time, I was like, hey, I don't have a name for my chart. So I'm going to use I'm going to use a name like his. And I did. So I adopted Egberto and I told him at that presentation that that while he was using Egberto, I was going to actually use Egbert's. Um, I'm sorry, he was using Egbert. But I was going to use Egbert's Hispanic cousin, which is Egberto. And Dan laughed at that. So he said it was OK. So I use it with permission. And what if this kid is making this kind of progress? He started at five words read correctly per minute because he's an English learner, so he's not developmentally at that level, but he makes 15 words read correctly per minute progress each and every time. When will that child catch up to that aim line? Yeah, I'll let you think about that for a second. The answer is never, of course, right? They will always be behind. They, they won't lose ground, but they won't gain ground, which is why I said before, you're not going to find that the average kid is going to gain because to gain in this case, he would have to make more progress than the average monolingual English speaker in a program that is not even designed to help him learn at a faster rate. The only way he'd really accomplish that task is if he were an exceptional learner. All right, if he was truly exceptional in his ability, then he would probably catch up. But the average kid isn't going to. And after four data points below the aim line, somebody's gonna say Egberto has a problem. Now, what if Egberto only makes this much progress? Now we would say, well, He's only making 10 words read correctly per minute each marking period. So clearly he's not making as much progress. So he's falling behind. So that's a big problem, right? Well, no, we don't know yet. What, what if that's like normal for uh, English learners like Egberto? Maybe that's what he should be doing. But this looks even worse because now he clearly is not just not keeping up, at least staying the same rate behind. He's now losing ground, five words every period. So he's 10 words behind by the time we get to the 12-week standard, and he's looking worse and worse. A couple more times, and he will be found to have a disability. And then you have progress that could look like this. Again, who's to say that if Egberto is just beginning to learn English, despite being in second grade, that that kind of progress is actually remarkable and 
average, expected. Maybe that's what it should be given his language development. And if that's the case, again, he's going to look horrible early on. He's only gaining five words here, so he's losing 10 words each and every time. He's so far behind. When is he likely ever to catch up? Never. It's just not going to happen. And so we look at him and say, yep, definitely he's got a disability, when in fact he may not. So now, here's what we want to do. All right. Let's say we have the same kind of example here. We have the red aim line there. We have the blue line, which I will designate as the true peer aim line for people like uh, Chesito and Panchito in this case. All right, so here's Chesito, here's Panchito. They're both English learners in second grade. Both of them have been learning English since kindergarten. The standard for that blue line would be the progress for children or English learners who've been learning English since kindergarten, which means now that they're in second grade for basically two years, okay? so. The purple line is Chesito's progress. The green line is Pachito's progress, all right? What happens is we need to consider the question that we're going to ask. So if I move ahead and I say, the question I want to know is, what are their instructional levels? What are their needs? What goals should we set? And how far behind are they academically? In other words, if I'm in an RTI and MTSS system where I'm not asking about disability, I'm asking strictly about how can we help these children learn better? What do they need? And what level of intensity do we need to provide? Well, it becomes pretty easy to figure that out. You notice that we still use the red aim line because that's grade level standard. There's nothing wrong with holding English learners to normal expected standards. We don't want to water it down. We don't want to say they should perform less and that's okay. That's where we want them to be. Whether we can get them there or not is a different story, but that's where we want them to be. Now, Chesito seems to be headed that way, but he's still lower than where he should be. So we've got to recognize he's got an instructional level that is below grade and it has to be reached. In other words, the language that's used in the classroom has to be comprehensible to him at that level, all right, to provide any kind of chance that he will continue to progress and to do better in school. Okay. Now, he has a difference. He's not at grade level and he might not ever get there, but that's his instructional need. And clearly his instructional need is higher than that of Panchito. Panchito has tremendous need. If we were looking at this in terms of levels, well, maybe we can do a uh, level two kind of intervention with Chesito, but Panchito's probably going to need level three. He needs a lot more intensive help to move him up the ladder a bit. But because we're only concerned about instructional level, we're only concerned about how far they are behind academically, right? then the aim line that we, we set and that comes from the standard of the classroom itself or the district or whatever is appropriate. And we're fine with that. There's nothing wrong with doing this. And this is a great way of determining how much instruction we need to give each child. But let's change the question. What if we start saying, uh, are these kids basically where they are because they lack ability? That is, they have a disability, or is it just that they are low because they are English learners? So it's a cultural linguistic difference, something that must be considered in the evaluation and consideration of a learning disability, as well as any other disability. You understand that even under IDEA, that a child may not be called a child with exceptional need, that is a child with a disability, if the only or primary reason they're having trouble in school has to do with limited English proficiency. So to answer that, which is a more of a diagnostic question, we then have to use that blue line standard, not the red line that was up here, but the blue one. 
And in this case, you see Chesito doing pretty darn well. We see Panchito not doing so well. And it becomes more clear that what we need to do is basically continue what we're doing with Chesito because he's doing fine. That doesn't indicate he has a disability. He may not be at grade level, but he's doing the very best that we could possibly expect him to do. Panchito, on the other hand, is really getting further behind, and that would be concerning, and that would be more legitimate in being able to say, this looks like information and possibly data that we can use to be able to say, we believe the child may have a learning disability of some kind, and therefore we believe special education would be warranted and appropriate. So that's how you make that distinction, and it's easy to see when you do it this way. It's not easy to see when you do it any other way. That's why the question you ask, all right, can be evaluated only by the most appropriate data, and the data aren't always the same. The standard for comparison is what really changes. So I, I like Fisher and Fry back in 2012. They had this beautiful quote here because it really, it really just highlights everything that I'm trying to say and it summarizes it so beautifully. And they're talking about a second grade girl who's an English learner at the early intermediate phase of language development. So she's a limited English proficient speaker. And they're saying her achievement profile isn't going to be comparable to that of her monolingual native English speaking classmates who sit next to her. They're saying in this case, like whatever norms we use to measure fluency, and that could be from a standardized test or that could be fluency from a curriculum based measure. It doesn't really matter. All right. Whatever those norms are, they're not generally accounting for the language development differences between these two girls. And because they don't, they're cautioning here that you should basically conduct a second analysis of that student's progress compared to linguistically similar students. Some people probably misinterpret linguistically similar to mean, oh, if she speaks Spanish, then that means we compare it to Spanish speakers. No, what they mean is if she is developmentally different, she only has a couple of years of learning English, she needs to be compared to other English learners who have also of the same age, but who have also only been learning English for a couple of years. That's the basic premise, and that's what really needs to happen. So I'm going to wrap up here, and I give you some uh, resources here that if you're interested in learning more about RTI and doing it well and so on, uh, there's a couple of nice things available uh, pretty much online. And uh, I participated in one of them with the... Um, uh, the the National Center for uh, Learning Disabilities on RTA-based SLD identification toolkit and the considerations, which are a lot of what we've talked about today, but you can certainly get a, a review of it um, at the link that's available there. There's also a nice practitioner's brief for RTI and English learners as well, well, two of them that are available online and should be very informative. But other than that, I'm pretty much done as promised before nine o'clock, and I'm gonna open it up to any questions that we might have. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. We were having a pretty um, engaged conversation <laughs> on the, in the sidebar. Um, I think that one of the themes is that people are, are feeling as though um, their teams, especially maybe teams that don't have the experience of being an English language learner themselves, yeah. uh, may have difficulty well, we may have difficulty convincing them. One of our viewers said that um, she felt like her team members would push for Chasito to be evaluated mm -hmm. as well. Um, what do you think that we could do uh, to to show our team the difference? Well, I mean, you're really asking a question that has to do with education. You're, you're trying to get people who don't know what they don't know to learn something. 
And that's a, that's a tough call. Generally, the way I handled it as a school psych was I had about three years in one school where I would kind of slowly educate people at the preferral meetings and kind of bring things up little by little, explain things and why this was this way, why this might not be a good referral, what else we could do. And, you know, it took about three years of that kind of educational process for them to finally sort of get it. And I don't know if there's a faster way of doing that, but it really has to do with opening their eyes. And you could hand them, you could get these briefs here and put it in front of them and say, you know, here's some of the issues and this is why, you know, we're dealing with this and wrestling with what we're trying to do. And, you know, we're trying to do everything better. And as long as I think you're advocating for the child, remember, everything that you're trying to do is because you really want to help the child learn better. So if people are truly invested in that, if they're truly committed to doing that, then they should be willing to listen to information that will help guide them make and help guide them in making good decisions about children who are English learners. So, I, I you know, it's a tough call. Um, education is the only thing that's going to really help little by little. Sure. And um, one other a little bit of confusion that we were having, you mentioned that um, if we were going to graduate students at third grade, then just immersion in English language would, would have yep. been enough. Can you can you explain sort of that kind of we, we sort of have a, a, a view that immersing them in the language is enough. What is it about that third grade? Is it learning is reading to learn? instead of learning to read, is that the shift that makes third grade, uh, makes them drop off at that point? Um, yes and no. Okay, so basically around fourth grade is where we would expect that children now have pretty much mastered the ability to read, write, do basic math. And so what we do in school is we further their language. This is also the difference between Bix and Calp. So Bix is social language all the way up to that point. But by the time we get to fourth grade now, we're trying to get children to think in the language. So we do shift from learning to read to reading to learn. We, we, we start introducing allegorical text. We start doing word problems in math. So the language must keep up with the development. For an English learner, they're just trying to get to that Bix level. Um, they haven't they haven't had a chance to get to the Calp level because they're just trying to understand English, which is something that the average monolingual English speaker could do already by kindergarten. So the instruction that has taken place from K through three has benefited the English learner to advance them and get them ready for that shift in the curriculum. And that's precisely why you see that plateau right there for uh, kids in ESL pullout. They have started from, you know, almost scratch from zero. They've now basically learned to comprehend the language, but they're at a point in their education. They're in fourth grade. They're nine years old where they're expected to be able to do more and be ready to master allegorical text, to be able to master word props, to be able to think in the language, not just converse in it. And they're not there developmentally. So what happens is they don't continue to gain, they lose ground every single year. They are so unprepared and underdeveloped for the instruction at that point that they not only main, do not maintain, they lose ground. So that's that's the thing. It, it, the, the more you ignore the development a child brings in, the more you're making them start from scratch. I usually say, think of it as a race. If, if one year of learning English is one lap, everybody had five laps when they started kindergarten. 
But I had five laps in Spanish, not in English. So if you said, well, that doesn't count, and you make me start racing at that point in English, that means after one year, I have one lap, but you have six. After another year, I have two, but you have seven. Another year, I have three, but you have eight. Another year, I have four, but you have nine. When do I catch up to you? I can't. By the time I'm in 12, I only have seven. You have 12. So it it, it it works against me because the only way to catch up is if you're truly an exceptional learner. If I have the capability of learning one and a half times as fast as you, then I'll catch up to you by about ninth grade, somewhere. In, well, about sixth grade, I should catch you. But that's not going to happen in the majority of cases. Right. Wow. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Some of the conversations that were going on were also, um, you know, referencing budgetary needs versus, you know, budgetary yeah. needs for support versus um, just having a lens, as Rebecca said, you know, the, the lens that uh, is perhaps a little more empathic to a second language learner or uh, open to the research that demonstrates this. Yeah, I mentioned that there's no way that every single child in the U.S. who's an English learner is going to get a native language program. That's just not mm -hmm. going to happen. Um, and I recognize that. I'm not saying that's the only, well, it's probably the only answer that's going to help everybody, but it's not going to be feasible. And an answer that isn't feasible and workable is just isn't going to be implemented. But you can help kids. And for me, it's not that I can't get them to grade level. It's not that, hey, because we're never going to be successful, we shouldn't even try. No, the point is we should do what we need to do because we can be successful with individuals in the long run. But the other thing is that we don't want to identify them as being disabled when, in fact, they're not. That will do much more damage than mm -hmm. just keeping them as close to contact with the the curriculum as possible. Calling them disabled sets them on a lifelong path where they're they're told and they come to believe that they are incapable of doing something, that they have a limitation. And that's what would have happened to me. And my writing was so atrocious. You guys probably don't believe this, but my writing was so bad in school that I would have been LD in writing had I been evaluated. And then I would have understood, well, I can't write because I have a disability in that area. I never would have mm -hmm. tried or I would never have gotten into a situation to allow me to improve it. I would never be doing the work that I'm doing today because it would have been impossible for me to even contemplate doing it. So I, I'm, I'm not going to criticize for not being able to provide native language instruction, but I will criticize for failing to uh, prevent children from being identified as, as disabled when in fact they don't have a disability. Yes. Yeah. Good. There's there's a lot of uh, discussion going on. One question that we had was, um, how much variability should we allow for in our grade level standards or in our, our cohort of students? Um, and then those grade level norms, obviously, as, as you noted, uh, someone else commented, uh, they're seen as over identifying or providing false positives. Yeah. Well, again, see, that's the key. If somebody is saying that that we're asking the question as to whether or not a child has a disability, then you can't use grade level standards to make mm -hmm. that decision. That will be wrong. That would be discriminatory. If you're asking how far below grade level is this child, which then would be an indication of what the level of intensity would be for instruction, then that's legitimate. And you use the grade level standard. Mm -hmm. And the grade level standard is what you want kids to get up to. But you can't penalize them for not getting there when it's not really their fault. 
and and that's what I'm trying to prevent. You know, if if you know that this child's progress based on where they're at is well below grade level, but it is exactly where it would be expected to be given the kind of program that they're in, then you know that it's normal and that child shouldn't be called LD or whatever in spite of their progress. In fact, I, I've I've done some research lately. I've taken, I don't know if you can tell, but these this chart that Thomas and Collier put together wasn't very precise. And I went back and took their data. And they have hundreds of thousands of kids in these studies here. And I was able to determine what these values are for each of these programs across K through 12. And I'm going to try to get them out there in school psychology so that pre-referral teams can use them as a way of indicating whether or not an English learner, based on the type of program that they're in, the grade that they're in, how long they've been in school, and the subject area, because I'll break them out for reading, writing, and math, you could then determine, is that child actually where we would expect them to be academically? And if they are, that would belie the presence of a disability. It would say, yes, the child is very, very low, but that's exactly where they need to be. And mm -hmm. I think it could be additional powerful evidence to prevent people from saying, well, it's got to be a disability because look how low they are. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ortiz, for being with us tonight. Everyone is really appreciative. Um, we have requests for you to create a curriculum for us to join our district, <laughs> to run for president, maybe. <laughs> I want to be Secretary of Education. I, okay. I had hoped that was going to happen last time, but that didn't work out so well. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. We will be back in two weeks with a wonderful episode. I will be um, not there for the last episode of the season. My daughter's graduating from college, but yeah. I'll try to tune in as a guest. So I'll try to be in the chat with all of you. Thank right. you, everyone. Enjoy your Sunday evening and have a great week. Great. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for Hi, joining everyone. in. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. You're very welcome.